0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by
1: GEHA. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday, November 30th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Jared Serviu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up at this hour of the Federal Drive, an industry perspective on CISA's latest plan to get more software security assurances from vendors. Also, VA's Million Veterans Program now has a million veterans. We'll explain what that is. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. First, though, Gen Z, or those born between the late 1990s and the early 2000s, will likely comprise at least one quarter of the global workforce by 2025, to tap into that younger generation of talent, U.S. intelligence agencies are trying to be more flexible with their hiring and retention practices. For an in-depth look at the IC's workforce strategies, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital, Cynthia Snyder.
2: One of the things that we learned is that there are so many young people that may not be familiar with the intelligence community. And so we've had the uh, opportunity working with OPM to establish the intelligencecareer.gov. And so this provides an opportunity for anyone that goes into OPM's site, they'll be able to see the intelligence community on microsites and have the opportunity to tap into those sites to learn more about us. That's a capability we had not already had, uh, we didn't have, and that's been in place for I guess, within the last year, 18 months. And as we've uh, kind of followed along on just the number, the exposure that we're getting as a result of that, you're talking, say, over a million people have gone into that site over the last year and probably half of them have gone into our microsites. We've also incorporated a commercial capability and that's the uh, virtual recruitment capability. And so there are three tools that we use. 16 of our 18 uh, agencies are using them today. Of course, everyone is talking about our Gen Zers. In my view, uh, I think that we certainly offer so much that aligns with their views, their values. When you look at some of their views, you know, they're more racially and ethnically diverse than previous generations, very well educated. They're uh, digital uh, natives. They have no memory of anything other than uh, smartphones. So they're definitely are not afraid of technology. Uh, Many of them experienced during the pandemic, some of the challenges with their families, friends of being unemployed. So establishing a secure work environment is important to them as well. They also enjoy feeling that they're contributing to a cause. And when you understand our missions, and we have tremendous missions, it's, it's something they can connect with because they can also connect with climate change, the things we do to support natural disasters. So there's so many areas that they can connect with us. Most consider pay a, a major factor for attracting talent. We have mixed reviews on that. In some cases, that may be a priority for some, but not all so, again, with our Gen Zers, it just depends on their area of expertise, but pay is not necessarily the dominating factor. They also look for flexibilities and the opportunity to continue to grow and learn. That's foundational for us as far as continuous learners.
3: Just having those flexibilities to move around even within the IC, maybe that hasn't existed as much before. How, how are you trying to get to that? Level of job mobility.
2: Okay, so right now we do have rotational programs. Uh, we call it our Joint Duty Program, which allow our workforce to apply for opportunities within other agencies to either broaden and strengthen their trade craft or help enhance their current trade craft. And also, as part of uh, leader development, because uh, in our view, everyone is an intelligence officer. And so the more you know about the intelligence community and other organizations, that'll make you an even stronger and effective leader. So we're continuing to focus on growing and developing future IC leaders. And uh, because we work so close together, um, our missions are are connected. You know we, we can't do anything in a, in a vacuum. We depend on each other to deliver uh, the most uh, accurate and time-sensitive responses to uh, support our senior decision makers. And so when you understand how each other contributes, then that makes you a stronger and effective leader because now you can have those conversations and uh, you understand what you need from the other agency. They understand your needs. So definitely uh, our joint duty program is one of the several programs that we use to continue to grow and develop uh, IC leaders. Uh, We also have a program that we're recently piloting, uh, Private Public Talent Exchange. And that's a program that's been established that we're piloting with industry. And uh, this provides us an opportunity to consider companies that specialize in areas that we may not have the breadth and depth in at this time, but we're growing that uh, capability and this provides us an opportunity to uh, send someone out to, on a rotational assignment with that company for three, six months, or whatever time frame that uh, we agree upon. And so when they come back, they'll be able to bring those uh, skill sets back to continue to infuse into our workplace. And that program also affords us an opportunity to bring industry into our footprint as well. And so we've made it through the first part uh, because, you know, working with our general counsel, just ensuring that we don't create a situation that would uh, imply that we're giving any company an advantage. So uh, we've worked through those initial discussions with our general counsel, and we're sending our first of a few out this fall, and they'll be focused in the space arena.
3: Okay, got it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. The public-private talent exchange is actually getting off the ground here with some space companies this fall. And you said it's just a few at this point?
2: There's uh, several other areas that we're focused in. So we've started with space. We'll have AIML, human capital, finance, and economic security, and data science. Those are the, the five that we're working towards establishing those relationships to uh, have rotational assignments within those companies.
3: I wanted to ask you about the improvements I wants to make to the personnel vetting process. I know that, you know, personnel vetting policy is not your lane per se when it comes to setting that policy, but in terms of how it could be made easier for part of the recruiting process, even if you can't necessarily speed up that timeline to just a few days to get your security clearance, Ob- obviously that, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but especially for these, you know, general Zers who just ha- probably have no awareness initially of what that process might be like, what they're really getting into, how are you trying to make this just easier to get through, more streamlined? Are there, are there strategies there from the human capital perspective?
2: Security always comes up in all of the discussions. And, uh, and we have a great partnership with our security personnel. And one of the things we're doing from the human capital perspective, we're uh, investing in uh, capabilities to try to integrate the security medical uh, suitability processes as part of an end to end process with our human capital systems. Currently, once you reach this stage of the process, Uh, that is handled outside of human capital, then it comes back into our process. And so what we're doing and we're trying to work is a capability that would integrate that process. So once we reach that stage of the process, it automatically transitions into whatever that element's security tool to continue that process. And so we're connected, talking the entire time. And once that process is complete then it automatically notifies us that we're ready to finalize that offer for the employee but just providing more automation is an area that we believe will help us strengthen that uh, process with our security partners
3: so essentially you're a candidate you get through you get your your job offer conditional on, on getting a clearance and the idea is that once that happens you wouldn't just kind of go into a, a nine-month period where you're not hearing anything while the background investigation happens.
2: Correct. And uh, once they submit their application, then we, our system, our goal is for our system to automatically transition into the security system to start that process. And there will be notifications throughout, just as reminders If there's additional information that's needed from the applicant, then that will be known. So it's increasing not only the uh, technology, connectivity, but the uh, communication throughout the process.
1: That's Cynthia Snyder, Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital, talking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. To hear their full conversation, check out the latest edition of Inside the IC at federalnewsnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, VA's Million Veterans Program now has a million veterans. We'll explain what that is next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back in the Federal Drive with Tom Timmon on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Over a decade ago, the Department of Veterans Affairs launched an ambitious project to build the world's largest collection of health and genetic data, the idea being it would be an invaluable tool for disease research. It's called the Million Veterans Program, or MVP, and as of this month, it's lived up to its name. There are now a million veterans enrolled and in the data set. To talk more about what it means and some of what VA has been doing with the data, we're joined now by Dr. Sumitra Muralidar, the Program Director for MVP. And Dr. Muralidar, thanks for being with us. Talk to us a bit about the origin of the Million Veteran Program. And, you know, was, is this about the cadence that you were expecting in terms of how long it would take to finally reach a million?
0: Well, that's a great question. So first of all, traditionally, how genetic studies were done were in silos. Like there would be an investigator who's... Interested in looking at the genetics of diabetes or heart disease, and they would you know enroll maybe a couple of thousand patients and uh, some controls and do their analyses. so it was kind of a siloed approach and in small numbers, so our vision was really kind of bold and game changing. We wanted to really enroll at least one million veterans into this program, collect their genetic information and their lifestyle and uh, military experiences and exposure information. And when we have one of the best electronic health records in the VA, so we could get access to the health record. And establish this mega database where researchers can now not just query one disease condition. They could look at any disease that is represented. With a million people, we're going to, you know, be seeing all sorts of health conditions represented that we see among veterans. So that was the first thing. The second was the scale. Instead of looking at a few thousand, now they can look at tens of thousands of people with a particular condition, or even hundreds of thousands of people uh, in, in a specific condition. And the third thing was diversity. You know, traditionally, most genetic studies done in people of European descent. In here, we wanted to leverage the diversity in the veteran population. Now, you know, we recently enrolled our millionth And really, as you know, we're past the million and we have over 180,000 veterans of African descent represented in the program and over 80,000 veterans that are Hispanic, over 100,000 women represented. So now we're going we're able to ask, you know, or make discoveries not only across different ancestries, but even discoveries of genetic markers specific to our population. So that was the goal when we first started out to say, let's change the paradigm here from individual researchers asking questions in small numbers of a particular condition and really create this large resource that can be tapped into. And our ultimate goal really was to be able to use this information to advance personalized or precision healthcare meaning we personalize personalized treatments or personalized screenings based on the genetics, lifestyle, and the medical history of an individual veteran. That's our ultimate goal.
1: Yeah, and so it sounds like the, the objective has always been to enable generally applicable medical research and not solely research that, that applies to veterans, although I'm sure you get that too.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, so a lot of the conditions we see in our veterans are also seen in the general population, you know, chronic conditions like heart disease, mental health issues, kidney disease, cancers. There. So anything we learn from this program in veterans is going to be applicable to the population at large.
1: And although you only recently reached the 1 million mark, the data set has been around and in progress for quite a while now. So, so what have researchers been able to glean from this large data set so far? Can you tell us about some of the research that's been conducted and any treatments that have come from that?
0: Well, absolutely. So, we didn't wait till we reached a million to start doing the science. So, we started curating the data and making it available. Um, so, we have over 100 projects and over 350 scientific publications that have come out from this uh, data set in in all conditions, you know, mental health, PTSD, depression, anxiety, TBI, um, heart disease, various cancers. So the entire spectrum of any, you know, condition you can think of. And some that are specific like tinnitus that we see among veterans, you know, that's, uh, or TBI that's more common in veterans. Uh, We've been able to do studies in these. And as I mentioned earlier, some of the largest studies, we've done a genetic association study in 165,000 veterans with PTSD. Anxiety, one of the largest ever done in 200,000 veterans. Uh, Depression in 300,000 veterans. So this has never been done before. And what we found is not only confirmed previous findings, we have identified new genetic markers across ancestries and also we've identified genetic markers that are specific to, to African-Americans and Hispanics in terms of um, uh, depression, um, even PTSD. So there are certain conditions where we've identified specific um, genetic markers. Now, in terms of your question about treatments, we are just now moving into that phase of trying to see what discoveries are uh, apt or, you know, appropriate for now moving into the clinic and how did, what that does that pathway look like? Um, and I can give you a couple of examples. Sure, so, please. Um, you know, prostate cancer, uh, common in, in men, um, and speci- uh, specifically of African-American descent, and uh, the lethal form of cancer, prostate cancer, is not seen in everybody. Everyone doesn't progress to the lethal form of metastatic prostate cancer. And there's no way of telling who will progress to that. So generally the treatment is prostatectomy because we don't currently have a way of predicting that. So one of our studies on uh, metastatic prostate cancer identified a number of genes together that can predict risk for the more dangerous form, the metastatic prostate cancer, and that's called a polygenic risk score. Say they've developed a polygenic risk score and now in a VA-funded clinical trial, we are testing it to say if we did, you know, standard of screening for prostate cancer, comparing that with standard of care screening plus adding this polygenic risk score. Will we be able to identify who progresses to the more dangerous form earlier so we can, you know, really focus and, and uh, target the aggressive treatments to those people who are at a higher risk? That's one example. Um, And I'll give you another one, and that's in um, end-stage renal disease. Um, Again, uh, people of African descent as well as Hispanics are more prone to end-stage renal disease. And our researchers studying this uh, found a specific genetic marker in this case that is beneficial. So not all genetic markers are, you know, bad and increase the risk. But in this case, they found a protective genetic marker. And, and then going into the mechanism of how that marker is protecting people from getting the, you know, progressing to end stage renal disease, they found that there could be, it's it sort of, you could have medications, drugs that can mimic this effect. So now it's not, not within the VA, but there is a, a, a pharma that has um, now testing a drug that mimics the effect of this protective genetic marker to see if that can benefit people with um, chronic kidney disease and prevent them from progressing to the end stage uh, renal disease. So these are a couple of examples of... uh,
1: and last thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, now that I've now, now that you've reached a million, I I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to stop and that you're going to want to continue to impanel veterans uh in, into this program so that you continue to to get uh, a contemporary read on things. How, how how do you think about that whole process going forward and how do veterans who are interested enroll?
0: Yeah, so so definitely we're not going to stop. We're going to continue. What we will do is focus on increasing the underrepresented populations. You know, so I, I mentioned over 180,000 African Americans and 80,000 Hispanics, women, 100,000, but we can do much better than that. And, you know, the goal is to now go focus our recruitment efforts on, on those populations and others like, you know, Native Americans, you know, Pacific Islanders, Asian Americans. Those are much, much more underrepresented. Um, we want to increase all those. And even medical conditions, what are the conditions that, where are the gaps in this large data set? What are we not seeing? And focus and enroll veterans on that. And so it's open. And uh, there are two ways. We have about 70 sites around the country right now that where veterans can enroll in person, and they can also enroll online. We have an online portal. And the address for that is mvp.va.gov so if they go to the portal they can enroll online complete the consent process complete surveys online they can schedule their own appointments at the va to uh, give a blood specimen or they can opt for getting a, a kit mailed home where they can do a, a blood draw small you know it's a small amount of blood it's a kit um that they can um, do that and send it back to the va so and if they go to the website, there's also a number there for our information center. If, if they have additional questions, they can ask uh, about the program and even have appointments made by our call center staff as well. I just wanted to call out uh, the, the altruism and the spirit of service of our veterans. you know, And that is why we are here today. Without that, we would not have been able to get to where we are or take this forward even. Um, and um, it, this is really, you know, a legacy that they're leaving behind, and it's a gift to the world. Because this database is, we expect it's going to be there forever and generate new information and bring it back to improve healthcare for
1: all people. Dr. Sumitra Muralidar is the Program Director for the Million Veterans Program at the Department of Veterans Affairs. You can hear this interview anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, an industry perspective on CISA's latest plan to get more software security assurances from vendors. That's next on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, in for Tom this week. Starting sometime next year, companies that want to sell software to the government will need to sign new attestations, certifying that they've taken certain steps to make sure their software is secure. Earlier this month, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency released its latest draft of the form companies will need to submit. One of the biggest changes is the attestations will have to be signed by companies' CEOs, but there are several other updates, too. To talk more about them and to get an industry perspective, we're joined now by Leopold Wildenauer, the Senior Manager for Public Sector Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. And Leopold, let me just ask you broadly, for starters, um, what's your general take on this second draft from CISA? Do they appear to be headed in the right direction?
4: Thank you for that question, Jared. And as you know, uh, two years ago, the Biden administration came out with the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity And ever since then, agencies have been working tirelessly to deliver the assignments from that EO. Fast forward to about two weeks ago, when CISA published this near final draft of the new self-attestation form, industry has been paying close attention to this issue from the very beginning, because there are a couple of outstanding questions that we have about how exactly this collection process will be implemented I think some of the issues that we had flagged in previous comments were addressed by the update, but there are a couple of outstanding items I'm happy to talk about today.
1: Yeah, let's take those in order. Talk first about what they did address to your satisfaction in this second draft and then what you think is still outstanding.
4: So what we were pleased to see addressed in this update to the form was the uh, inclusion of a statement that the attestation is to the best of the signatories' knowledge. That is something that we had called for in our comments that we had provided on the initial draft of the form. And we were very much pleased to see that there was an openness from uh, CISA to take uh, public feedback and really work with that and address stakeholder feedback in a meaningful manner.
1: And what do you think still needs to be addressed as the process continues to unfold?
4: So one of the topics that I think still needs to be addressed is the issue of flexibility. If you look at the form, the self attestation is a product a product of the cyber EO. So there are multiple tiebacks to larger cybersecurity policy priorities as well. One obvious example here is the connection of the form back to the SSDF, the Secure Software Development Framework. The SSDF was developed in partnership with industry stakeholders and outlines a number of security practices that can really help secure the software development process. So it does go to support uh, this desired outcome of a more secure software development. The SSDF is designed in a flexible manner, which is a good thing because it gives developers the option to choose the right tool for their specific development context. The self-attestation, again, references specific implementation examples from the SSDF, which is concerning to industry because it removes some of the flexibility that is contained in the SSDF. We believe it would be better for the self-attestation to actually reference the higher level processes instead of the discrete examples, because that would provide really that adaptability that is so critical to implementing the SSDF.
1: And one of the biggest changes in in this draft specifically seems to be that CISA is going to require a sign off by the CEO. And previously, I think the CEO was allowed to delegate that. Lower. It seems to be in line with what CISA has said before about how they think you know CEOs and boards need to take accountability for the security of their software. I wonder, you know, if, if you think this achieves that, or are most CEOs already there?
4: I think that's exactly right. That the intention behind this is to raise cybersecurity to a board-level issue and really bring it into the boardroom for a consideration. I think that this will be very specific and depend on the discrete context and the discrete company that you're looking at. So I think that, generally speaking, we're seeing a trend into cybersecurity discussions happening more, taking place in those boardrooms. But I think there's still uh, room to grow. And what we would like to see is to reinstate the designee option, because especially for larger companies, it can be challenging to have uh, a sign-off by the CEO or the CEO uh, for these self-attestation forms, even if we understand where CISA is coming from.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that gets back to the point that you made where the CEO is signing off to the best of their knowledge and there's some good faith language in there too, which seems like a big loophole, which almost raises the question of of what's the point of raising it to that level. If there is a, a workaround of that size or of that significance,
4: I would disagree that it's a loophole. I think it goes back to the question of how you're thinking about liability. And there is a lot of attention that's being paid to the uh, software liability issue. And I think we will see this come up again when we look at the deliverable and at the symposium from the National Cybersecurity Strategy that ONCD is putting together early next year. So I think we will see some of those discussions there. And I would view this forum as one of the stepping stones towards this discussion. But I think uh, there's still a lot of discussion that needs to take place.
1: How do you think about this in relationship to all the other things that companies need to do to be compliant with federal requirements when it comes to software security? I mean, is this an additional burden that companies have to think about or is it more in harmony with other things that may be coming down the pike like CMMC? In other words, if you're, if you're compliant with the other things, are you already compliant with this form and it's not a huge thing to worry about? I
4: think both the administration and industry are aligned in their uh, thinking and in their desire to reduce the burden and to streamline the process as much as possible here. One of the changes that we've seen with the form is that it uh, does allow for uh, FedRAMP 3PAO's assessments to be considered in lieu of this self attestation form. I think there's another uh, point to this where Agencies need to take certain steps to make sure that they are set up for success by the time that they actually need to start collecting these forms, which is this question of the centralized repository. I think that industry and the administration, again, are aligned in their desire to streamline the collection process to the greatest extent possible. And that is why OMB had to test CISA and GSA to develop a centralized repository that will help facilitate the collection and the secure storage of these attestation forms. To this date, we're not aware that this system is up and running just yet. So we would really like to see the prioritization of this effort to ensure that it doesn't become this additional burden that you talked about, but really helps with the streamlining and the efforts that are currently happening to harmonize the regulatory landscape.
1: And I think the last specific thing I wanted to ask you about is there is some language in the form that, that says that agencies can go beyond the specific requirements of the forum and ask for S-bombs, other artifacts, if they deem that necessary. I, I wonder how worrisome that is to you. I, I guess part of it depends on how many agencies accept that invitation from CISA to do that.
4: I think here it is important to go back to the original memo and to look at what we are uh Talking about here, this form came about because of the OMB Memorandum M twenty two eighteen, which directs federal agency heads to leverage their FISMA authorities to request information from their contractors to ensure that they meet certain minimum security requirements. So this is a FISMA authority issue, and agencies already have these authorities to request additional information under FISMA. So having this form will actually standardize the process because it provides one common form uh, for agencies to use. So in a way, it is actually preferable to have one form rather than every agency go about and uh, issue their own form, which, again, OMB has made clear is still an option, but it will need to pass through the Paperwork Reduction Act review. I think there's one more issue that really stands out to us, and that's the issue of the software inventory. So I think in order then to set up all of the players for success and to ensure that the form collection will be ready by the time that the requirement kicks in, there's still a lack of understanding within industry of which products will be categorized as critical software versus all other software. And that is complicated by the fact that software producers don't always have full visibility into who the final end users of their products are. So if you just think of commercial software that is being sold through a third-party reseller or software that is embedded within a larger complex system, for example, like a car, these types of software are in scope for this attestation requirements, if you really look into it. So agencies will need to come up with a comprehensive list of the software products that they do use. To ensure that these attestations are available on time for all of the products that are being used by federal agencies, we would urge agencies to get in touch with software producers of those covered products so that they can do the lack work up front and agencies actually deliver on their testing that was outlined in m twenty two eighteen.
1: Leopold Wildenauer is the Senior Manager for Public Sector Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash drive. And still to come on Federal News Network, the Commerce Department is seeing some extra non-cyber advantages of moving to zero trust. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. For the Commerce Department, one of the unintended benefits of the zero-trust mandate is the move to enterprise services more broadly. The Commerce CIO Council created a working group to come up with plans to share security tools, and that opened the door to sharing other non-cyber capabilities. Andre Mendez is the Commerce Department's Chief Information Officer. He tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how the agency's made substantial progress with not just zero trust capabilities, but digital transformation more broadly.
5: We had a working group that put together recommendations around EDR, around ICAM, around the SASE solution, and are moving on into other disciplines and other towers within the, the ZTA architecture. But the important thing is to to recognize that uh, we have done so as a group of CIOs and subject matter experts, and that we are generating very substantial uh, economies of scale associated with that. Very proud of that, because I think that uh, by between the economies of scale and uh, a lot of the legacy systems that we can obviate at our bureaus, we can actually have a cost model that is very good.
6: Talk a little bit about the working group of recommendations. You mentioned EDR, SASE, ICAM. Are you having, for instance, NOAA running EDR and Census running SASE from the whole government, whole of commerce approach? How are you rolling out these capabilities?
5: Uh, Actually, so far with the three implementations that we've had, we're doing it as uh, software as a service in the cloud. So the vendor is running everything. And then we have a federated environment that allows for visibility into the entire environment while at the same time maintaining the independence of each one of the bureaus. So that they they are assured that their data is not going to be changed by anybody externally, that certain data, for example, title data, is protected so that nobody can look at it that, that is not supposed to look at it, and that is quite honestly a kudos to these vendors who have understood that federated model and have implemented measures in terms of uh, how to how to lay it out, and that allows us to do that type of differentiation even within a a, a standard umbrella.
6: So it sounds to me like um, if. Bureau 1 wants a SASE, they go to that software as a service and, and take advantage of the, that opportunity. If they want ICAM, I imagine they all want it, but it's all when they're ready for it, and how they're using it and how deep they can go yeah. versus um, you're mandating, okay, everyone must use EDR this way in this approach. There's some guardrails, but talk a little bit about.
5: That is uh, an interesting proposition. For some of the bureaus, it's a real easy decision. SASE is paying for the first two years of EDR. And so they had a solution that was in place, but was potentially a legacy solution. For them, it's a no-brainer. Boom, let's go. You go with a tried-and-true system that is one of the highest rated in the environment, uh, and that is paid for. So you can generate all kinds of savings right off the bat. With certain, with certain other bureaus, it's a much more complicated environment. They have a good working environment that has a lot of uh, um, interfaces with different systems, some of them legacy systems, some of them new systems and everything in between. So, you know, for me to come in and issue a mandate that says ye shall use this particular EDR solution is not an easy proposition and possibly not the best
6: proposition. So in the end, you're making this available and then folks can use it when they see when the timing is right.
5: Yeah, but, but we're seeing a lot of a lot of migrations. Yeah, yeah. For example, with our, with our ICAM solution, I've actually been surprised. And how many people have decided, how many bureaus have decided, yeah, this is for us. And they're doing it right now, right? And so that is a validation of that model. With ICAM, it, it's a little easier because you can federate the environment. And so it, it doesn't need to be an all or nothing. But would I be very happy if by the end of this year, we have two ICAM solutions at the Department of Commerce? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we used to have N or a lot of uh, bureaus that had none, right? Which is not acceptable anymore. Right? So we're, we're making substantial progress That With a SASE solution, a lot of bureaus do not have one. Some have uh, you know, relatively recent implementations. And some have requirements that will not be fulfilled by one solution. They will require a, a couple of solutions. And again, what we're asking them is to look at this particular one and then see if it needs to supple- be supplemented by another one. But by and large, I think it's been extremely successful.
6: Andrea, the other piece of this you mentioned was uh, kind of the workforce as we talk about changes, whether it's cyber or cloud or customer experience or what have you, the workforce is being impacted by all of these changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know recruitment is hard. Retaining folks is hard. Training folks, the budget is always tight. How are you kind of addressing this? that whole piece and part to, the, to ensuring your workforce is, is ready and, and willing and able? Hiring is very hard. Yeah.
5: Uh, retaining is hard, but not as hard as hiring. Because we are deploying, you know, sort of best of breed, latest and greatest technologies, and people like to work with that. I, You know, that's one thing I found with IT people, they like to work with that. Now, once they've been on board for 20 or 30 years, and they've become inured to a particular system, then they like to work with that because of all their expertise. But this is a, uh, you know, this this is where, you know, leadership and change management comes on board. Uh, awakening the the iconoclastic nature of IT people that was there at one time and that sometimes got a little subverted, right? Yeah, it is an important challenge. But I found that you know when we're doing that in an environment that is supportive, uh, and that presents them with the, la- the latest and greatest, that people are willing to make that change, right? And a few won't. A few won't. But that's always the case. I mean, I don't care if you're in the federal sector, in the private sector, in nonprofit. There's always that type of situation. Now. I am a big proponent of hiring, and this might sound interesting, but hiring smart, but ignorant iconoclasts. (laughs) Yeah. You might have heard me say that, right? I don't believe that we should be constantly hiring people that already know our business in and out. We need people that come in from the outside with a fresh approach to things, with a new view, asking stupid questions that nobody internally would dream of asking because they would be embarrassed, and sometimes because they wouldn't think about it. And so we need to move away from that. We need to move away from, you know, stealing GS-13s, 14s, and 15s away from each other. You know, that gets old, and it creates a problem that that not, not many people are willing to talk about, Jason, and that is this. In our zeal to fill positions, we will consider a 13 for a 14 position for which he or she might not be ready. And then that 14 might be uh, attempted by a 15 and another agency hired for which he and she is not ready. And all of a sudden, we have a 13 that is barely prepared, becoming a 14 that is woefully prepared, becoming a 15 that is mediocrely prepared. And that's a very dangerous game because it ensconces Peter Principle into these organizations, and that's very, very tough, right? So we need to be very cognizant of that, that just the zeal for hiring, the urgency of hiring, should not make us make bad decisions. Andre Mendez is the
1: Commerce Department's Chief Information Officer. You can listen to his full interview with Jason Miller on Ask the CIO today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on Federal News Radio. Many agencies are still adjusting their return-to-office plans after a push from the Biden administration to cut back on telework. The White House says agencies should have robust ways to collect data, measure workforce productivity, and make adjustments to work settings where needed. But Congress isn't totally happy with agencies' results. They spent time this week trying to get more answers. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman covered a House Oversight and Accountability Committee hearing, and she filed this report.
7: Left largely unsatisfied with the telework information available, committee lawmakers pressed harder on a handful of federal executives just this week. They're seeking more information and answers on continued telework and how that impacts both productivity as well as recruitment and retention of the federal workforce. Earlier this year, Republican committee leaders did call on agencies to share more granular data on telework and the productivity of their federal employees. But the lawmakers said they were left wanting more from many of those agencies.
8: Many responses were, in fact, not responsive. They did not respond or severely delayed their response to this government operations request. 11 of the 25 did not include any figures at all regarding how many of their employees were currently teleworking, either in Washington, D.C., this area, or nationwide. This lack of transparency or lack of basic knowledge the administration has about the federal telework workforce raises concerns that every single member on this committee on both sides of the aisle should share and be a part of.
7: That's Texas Republican Pete Sessions. He's chairman of the Oversight Committee's subcommittee on government operations and the federal workforce. Sessions says the four agencies at the hearing this week, the Social Security Administration, the Commerce Department, the Department of Health and Human Services, and USAID, exemplified the agencies that didn't provide enough information on telework. At the subcommittee hearing, the agency leaders tried to give more information while also emphasizing the importance of hybrid work and maintaining a balance of both telework and in-person work. Telework for the federal workforce did not start with the pandemic. Many telework programs date back to 2010 and in some cases much earlier. The agency leaders said having telework programs in place ahead of the pandemic was invaluable, vital, and fundamental for continuing to work throughout the pandemic. Now several years past the pandemic, many agencies have maintained that telework is not going away, but it'll likely change moving forward. Jeremy Pelter is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration at the Department of Commerce.
5: The department now operates in a hybrid posture that is designed to help us retain and motivate our employees by providing flexibility to a workforce changed by the pandemic, but which also embraces the many benefits of in-person engagement and team building. Following the Secretary's return-to-office announcement in March of 2022, the Department's headquarters saw the average daily occupancy increase from 24 percent in the third quarter of FY22 to now 42 percent, ending the fourth quarter of FY23, the most recent full quarter. The Department anticipates that this upward trend will continue.
7: That upward trend is not unique to the Commerce Department, But other agencies, like the Department of Health and Human Services, say that as things do ramp up, it really is still about that balance, as well as driving and measuring results. Bob Levitt is HHS's chief human capital officer.
6: There is a correlation between employee engagement and the attention to employee well-being and the performance and the results that we're able to deliver. Workplace flexibilities matter in delivering well-being, engagement for the workforce, and their ability to perform and be productive in support of all Americans.
7: Leaders like Pelter and Levitt say that flexibility helps them remain competitive against the private sector. After the pandemic, many employees have said telework is much more important to them. And agencies say there are certain areas of the workforce where it's especially important. In just one example, military spouses who often face unemployment when their families relocate are highly drawn to remote work options. By keeping that in mind, Levitt said efforts at HHS to hire military spouses have paid off.
6: Workplace flexibilities help us retain military spouses regardless of where their families move throughout the country in service to the American people. This year, we increased the number of military spouses hired by 36%.
7: Despite the flexibilities, committee Republicans remained concerned about several areas. They said increased telework during the pandemic contributed to worsening agency services, as well as underuse of federal office space. Andy Biggs, a Republican from Arizona, pointed to a report from the Government Accountability Office earlier this year showing that federal offices in the D.C. area were at just 25 percent capacity on average.
8: No agency of the federal government was utilizing more than 50 percent of their headquarters office space. The top quartile, average utilization, was 35%. USAID and HHS fell into the second quartile, each with about a 23% utilization rate. SSA was in the bottom quartile of the agency surveyed, along with HUD, GSA, OPM, USD, and SBA. Each of those agencies averaged 9% building utilization. That's 9%. 9%. Federal agencies spend $2 billion annually of taxpayer money to operate and maintain federal buildings and... Spend $5 billion more on leases in our nation's capital, the offices are sitting empty.
7: But it's not just about the office space. Republicans also pushed for answers on the security of systems for teleworking employees, declining productivity and services, and performance management. But on the other hand, committee Democrats say if there are protocols in place to measure productivity and hold employees accountable, then location matters much less. Jerry Connolly is a Democrat from Virginia.
6: If your job is to write proposals to the federal government and you want a hit rate of X percent and you exceed, meet or exceed that, I don't care if you're at home watching soap operas in your pajamas. Keep doing what you're doing because it's the outcome that matters. Not every job can say that. Not every job lends itself to telework. But there are plenty of jobs where we can actually enhance productivity. And in the middle of a pandemic, thank God we had the structured program you described, because it saved lives.
7: Regardless of the debate, agencies at the hearing all emphasize that telework is not one-size-fits-all and not right for every position. Going forward, they say it'll be about making changes over time, listening to both federal employees and customers, and adjusting where necessary. Hank McNally is an executive counselor at the Social Security Administration.
8: We know that many people rely on our in-person services, while others prefer to reach us online and by phone. For example, we began offering online video hearings using software that allows hearing participation from any private location using a smartphone, tablet, or computer. Today, 80% of our claimants continue to voluntarily elect a hearing option that does not require travel to our offices. Meanwhile, we ended fiscal year 23 with the lowest level of pending cases since 2000 and are on track to reduce the average wait for a hearing decision to our goal of 270 days. This is an example of how our service is evolving and how our hybrid work approach continues to support
7: our mission. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network.
1: And you can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. For the latest updates, stay with FederalNewsNetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. I'm Jared Serbu filling in.